You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. The allotment of the people of Joseph went from the Jordan by Jericho, east of the waters of Jericho, into the wilderness, going up from Jericho into the hill country, to Bethel. Then, going from Bethel to Luz, it passes along to Adaroth, the territory of the Archites. Then it goes down westward to the territory of the Japhletites, as far as the territory of Lower Beth-Horon, then to Gezer, and it ends at the sea. The people of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim received their inheritance. The territory of the people of Ephraim by their clans was as follows. The boundary of their inheritance on the east was Adaroth-Adar, as far as upper Beth-Horon, and the boundary goes from there to the sea. On the north is Mikmetath. Then on the east the boundary turns around toward Ta'anath-Shiloh and passes along beyond it on the east to Genoa. Then it goes down from Genoa to Adaroth and to Naara and touches Jericho, ending at the Jordan. From Tapua, the boundary goes westward to the brook Cana and ends at the sea. Such is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Ephraim by their clans, together with the towns that were set apart for the people of Ephraim within the inheritance of the Manasites, all those towns with their villages. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. Then allotment was made to the people of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. To Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, were allotted Gilead and Bashan, because he was a man of war. And allotments were made to the rest of the people of Manasseh by their clans, Abiezer, Helek, Azrael, Shechem, Hefer, and Shemida. These were the male descendants of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, by their clans. Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters, and these are the names of his daughters. Maha, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They approached Eleazar the priest, and Joshua the son of Nun, and the leaders, and said, Yahweh commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of Yahweh, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. The land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. The territory of Manasseh reached from Asher to Mikmetath, which is east of Shechem. Then the boundary goes along southward to the inhabitants of Entapua. The land of Tapua belonged to Manasseh, but the town of Tapua on the boundary of Manasseh belonged to the people of Ephraim. Then the boundary went down to the brook Cana. These cities to the south of the brook among the cities of Manasseh belonged to Ephraim. Then the boundary of Manasseh goes on the north side of the brook and ends at the sea, the land to the south being Ephraim's, and that to the north being Manasseh's, with the sea forming its boundary. On the north, Asher is reached, and on the east, Issachar. Also in Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Bethshean and its villages, and Ibliam and its villages, and the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Endor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Ta'anak, and its villages, and the inhabitants of Megiddo, and its villages, the third is Nephath. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along Yahweh has blessed me? And Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, 
The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Bethshean and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and to Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours, for though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders, for you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 694 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023, and that was a reading of Joshua chapters 16 and 17 in the Old Testament. We've got some discussion of allotments and a recognition of some challenges. There are going to be some challenges in possessing a certain part of the land because there are already people there and they're strong and they have iron chariots and um, yeah, what to do, what to do, what to do, what to do, what to do about these iron chariots. Now you guys will be fine. You are a numerous people. You're strong. You're capable. You'll figure it out is basically what Joshua tells them. You'll be fine. Yeah, you've got this. But let's just think about some of the things that are being said in passing in these two chapters. There's a couple of other recognitions I want to talk about. There are a couple of other passing admissions, namely that this or that allotment, this or that piece of land being given, the people of Israel, this or that tribe, are not able to drive out the inhabitants therein. That was the idea. That was the intention. Drive them out. And then it says they couldn't. So what about that? (laughs) Right? Verse 10 in chapter 16, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. We're already beginning to see the stage set for the next phase of the history of Israel and the history of this region. In these little admissions, these little recognitions of a side-by-side new status quo. Now, what's interesting is verse 10 doesn't say they could not drive out the Canaanites. It says they did not drive out the Canaanites. It doesn't say they couldn't. And on this point, I'll mention that when my sons or my daughter will be told to do something by me, very often they'll say, oh, I can't, right? If I say, I want you to go find something, and they say, I can't find it. They come back five minutes later and they say, I can't find it. What I will tell them is, don't say can't, say haven't. I haven't found it. That would be more correct. This thing that I've sent you to look for does exist. It is possible to find it. But if you say you can't find it, then that will be true. It will be true that you can't find it if you tell yourself that you can't find it. Because if you tell if you tell yourself you can't find it, you're going to just stop looking. You're going to stop looking for it. You're going to give up. But if you say, I can find it, I just haven't yet, then you might make a different kind of a decision. You might make the decision to keep on looking, for instance, or we might get a more precise statement, which is, I want to or need to do something else. I've looked for five minutes. I've looked for 10 minutes, but now I need to do this thing mom asked me to do, or I need to get ready to go to Spanish lessons, or I need to go to football practice or fill in the blank. But being somewhat stuck (laughs) on distinguishing between can't and haven't or can't and couldn't and on the other hand, aren't and didn't. I notice here 
that the word is didn't. They did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. And so what? What was the result of them not driving out these Canaanites? Put simply, the Canaanites live in the midst of Ephraim. So now they're neighbors. Now they are going to mix it up. That's just what it is. You don't drive them out, and what will you get? You will get them still being there. I mean, that's pretty self-evident, but then again, it's mentioned, it's told because it's going to be relevant. It's terribly relevant right now, but it's going to be even more relevant as the story progresses, as the narrative unfolds. There's a similar kind of admission in chapter 17, although this one doesn't say didn't. Verse 12, yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now, when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Now, there's a shift, and don't miss the shift. At first, it was could not. The people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted. Okay, so they couldn't. But then wait, it wasn't going to be immediate. Remember? Remember that God said he wasn't going to drive out the inhabitants of Canaan in a short period of time. He was going to drive them out gradually as Israel grew in strength, as they multiplied, basically is what that amounts to. Growing in strength as a people means growing in the number of people that there are. Also, too, there's an aspect of growing in strength of character, strength of skill and ability and competence and willpower and knowledge and understanding and wisdom. But all of those other things are a factor in many cases of or correlated with growing in the number of people. So God had said he wasn't going to drive out the inhabitants of Canaan in a short time because if he did, wild animals would come in and multiply and fill that vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum. That's how God designed nature. Horror vacui. If anyone ever shows you a glass of water in which the water only goes about halfway up the glass and they ask you, is this glass half full or half empty? You say it's full, half filled with water, half filled with air because nature abhors a vacuum. Don't be pedantic about it, but that's more correct. It's half filled with water. That's fine. But the other half is filled with air. And what God told Israel very clearly, but maybe they weren't paying attention. Maybe they forgot. Maybe they didn't care. Maybe they ignored that one. God said he wasn't going to drive out the Canaanites in a short time because wild animals would come in and cause a problem for Israel. So it was a mercy of sorts for Israel, but it was also a recognition that even as they were possessing the land, as they were settling it, as they were waging war, as they were fighting battles, the men, the women would be having children and raising those children, raising the next generation. The fathers too, but if the fathers were off fighting a battle, fighting a war, it was the mothers. And then the fathers come home and they obey the Shemal Yisrael. And they teach their sons and their daughters the commands of God at all times. When they sit down, when they get up, when they walk around, when they're working, when they're resting, when they're eating, at all times. And so don't miss that they weren't able, and then they grew strong enough that they were able, but then they didn't. So they couldn't until they could. There was a point in time where they could not drive out these Canaanites, and then there was a change in circumstances where they could have if they wanted to, and they chose not to. They did not drive them out. What did they do instead? They put the Canaanites to forced labor. That's not what they were told to do. They weren't told to put the Canaanites to forced labor. They were told to drive them out. As a brief comment on that, realize that God doesn't always intervene to provide clear consequences in the moment of 
and indiscretion, sometimes the natural consequences of having disobeyed God bring the correction in due time. And sometimes the natural consequences take some decades or even centuries to come to fruition, to be recognized for what they will be. Also notice that there is a certain normalization of deviance. We see it in chapter 16. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. Oh, you can do that? <laughs> you, you can do that? That's a thing? Manasseh says, yeah, I think we'll do that too. Initially, they weren't strong enough, and then they became strong enough, but then they're thinking about Ephraim and how Ephraim handled this problem. And they say, let's do what Ephraim did in this case. Yeah, nothing bad seems to have happened to them just yet. God didn't intervene and punish Ephraim, it looks like. They got away with it. Let's also do that. Well, give it time. In due time, you will realize that you being disobedient there was a bad choice. It was a bad decision. But let's talk also before we move into some current events items, let's talk about these people who have the chariots of iron, the Canaanites who dwell in the plain. They have chariots of iron, and that's a little worrying. Just think for a moment, if you can imagine being in the shoes of an Israelite man who is going to go off and fight battles against such peoples, And if you don't have chariots yourself, if you don't have horses yourself, it's you on foot, probably with spears, swords, bows and arrows, maybe some daggers here and there. The enemy has chariots. That is a scary thought. Essentially, chariots at this time in world history, wherever chariots were found all over the world, chariots pulled by usually horses, chariots were the shock troops. Rather, those who rode in the chariots were shock troops. They would crash into a line of infantry and break them up, trample them, run them over. You might have an archer and also the driver. And for that time, it was the equivalent of tanks today. So you would have a line of chariots, but you don't need a lot of chariots to really disrupt whatever formations, whatever tactics your enemy has brought to the battlefield. You really don't. You don't need a lot of chariots to totally wreck their plans. And think of it like that. Think of it like taking a wrecking ball to an office building. When you drive a chariot at high speeds into a line of infantry. Some of them are killed. Some of them are badly injured. This is before we even get to the possibility that your wheels are going to have blades on them, that as the wheels are turning, those blades are spinning and those blades on the wheels are going to catch legs and torsos for those who are just even standing on the sides. And so when you crash into the enemy with these chariots, not only do you either have an archer who is firing arrows as the chariot advances on your position and presenting a difficult target because it's a moving target coming at you at some speed, especially if you're fighting on the plains, not only do you potentially have somebody up there in the chariot with a spear probably that can reach, but you have these blades, you have the weight and the hardness of the horses and the chariot itself, all of these things like a wrecking ball. So the concern is not invalid. And if these are chariots of iron, that is to say they are hardened. You're not going to just be able to take swings at the chariots as they pass by They might make several passes. They might blow through your line of troops, go on a ways, turn, and make another pass until they've completely broken your troops. And then whoever's left just 
scatters, runs for the hills. That's how chariot warfare was typically fought. What does Joshua say? He says, you got this. You'll be fine. (laughs) You'll, You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. But we're beginning to see some cracks and some fissures in the discipline of Israel in these chapters here. One, with regards to how they treat with the Canaanites, whether they drive them out when they're able to or do some other thing. For another thing, we're beginning to see some cracks again in their conviction that they can actually do this. Can they actually win against these people? Again, this is going to produce consequences as the narrative continues to unfold. You're going to see that these are important decisions. The things that are said, the things that are done, the things that are not done, the things that are not said, these are important, weighty, consequential turning points for Israel, for each tribe, for each man. But let's get into some current events items. Let's talk about a story that I found on MSN.com from a Camille Fine writing for USA Today, 8,500-year-old village discovered beneath Albanian Lake is oldest known in Europe. As Camille writes, scientists have possibly found one of Europe's oldest, earliest sedentary communities sheltered behind a fortress of defensive spikes beneath one of the oldest lakes in the world. The discovery beneath Lake Orid in the village of Lynn, Albania, confirms that lakeshore settlements of the region, which straddles the mountainous border of North Macedonia, are much older than archaeologists expected, said Albert Hafner, a professor of archaeology from Switzerland's University of Bern. An interview with the university indicated. The findings made by Swiss and Albanian archaeologists with the help of professional divers indicate that Lynn served as a hub for the development of agriculture, craftsmanship, and fishing around 8,500 years ago, making it the oldest lakeside village discovered to date and even older than similar ones found in southern Italy and throughout Europe. Until the Explo project's finding, the oldest previously known settlements in the Mediterranean and Alpine regions were several hundred years younger, the new radiocarbon date points to between 6,000 and 5,800 BC as a time mark for one of Europe's earliest settlement of stilt houses. Quote, archaeological sites in lakes of the southern Balkans, Greece, Albania, and North Macedonia provide an excellent opportunity to investigate rich archives of societal and environmental change in the cradle of European farming. Explo Project's website states, Quote, natural lake sediments and submerged prehistoric settlements offer exceptional preservation conditions and uniquely holistic insights into past anthroposphere, biosphere, and geosphere dynamics, end quote. Albanian archaeologist Adrian Anastasi told AFP that, quote, building their village on stilts was a complex task, very complicated, very difficult, and it's important to understand why these people made this choice, end quote. Now, how complex was it? How difficult was it? Well, we do it. Let's not presume that the people who lived thousands of years ago were any less intelligent or less capable, less entrepreneurial, less inventive than we are. Please. Was it too complex for them based on what our presuppositions are about how advanced they were? I would say in the mainstream, yes. In my view, no. I give the ancient peoples much more credit than what seems to be typical in our day. What seems to be the appetite in our day is we presuppose an evolutionary mindset, which is very self-serving, very flattering to us living today, but is also out of step with what I read in the biblical chronology. I see an advancement, a level of sophistication and intelligence and smarts, if you will, cleverness, that may even have been better than ours today in many respects. Just because we don't find all of the evidence, as this story indicates, that doesn't mean that there is not evidence, and it doesn't mean that we can make confident claims about the limits of what they were capable of. But I digress. One thing I find curious in this story is 
besides the idea that this is a much older, by several hundred years, settlement, potentially, possibly, take with a grain of salt, radiocarbon dating claims, particularly when this or that archaeologist or university or institution can put themselves on the map by dating things older than they necessarily are. Aside from that, the idea that there were these houses on stilts, these structures on stilts, and also that they think there were spikes set up. Both of those things together are pretty interesting to me. The question is posed in this write-up, what were they trying to protect themselves from? And why I find that to be a curious question is, for one, we have records of wars and fighting and raiding and battles going back to the earliest times in human history, casually mentioned as a matter of course, like, yes, this is a thing. But also, biblically, we have the flood being introduced as what God had decided to do to destroy all life on earth, except what was on the ark. We have that being introduced with the summary that the earth was filled with violence, and that was not okay with God. That wasn't God's original design or intention. That was an effect of sin. That was a corruption. That was a deviation. And nevertheless, it happened. And God allowed it to happen. But then God also, at a certain point, put a stop to that trajectory. And you can say, ah, but there was violence again afterwards, and there's still violence today. Yeah, but the kind of violence and the nature of the violence, we maybe don't fully appreciate. There's a lot we don't know even within the biblical account because what we're told is a pretty general statement. The earth was filled with violence. Well, what kinds of violence? Probably all kinds of violence. Maybe even kinds of violence that are not common today. As a matter of fact, maybe the ancient peoples were far more sophisticated, far more capable, far more clever in their ways of trying to kill each other than we understand or than we find evidence for. Maybe that actually uh, was part of the reason for the flood, to interrupt these things, to destroy the effects, because that needed to be curtailed. God had a longer plan and vision, and he's still working that plan and that vision, that purpose for creation, even with the sin of man, subjecting creation to futility, death, dying, suffering, violence. Although we know in the last days, It will be as in the days of Noah. It won't be a new thing. Whatever was happening that led up to the flood will be happening again. And so maybe a particular kind of violence, a particular combination of kinds of violence will be typical and will be common. And the only way to break the gridlock is going to be that God himself intervenes. But it's curious to me, even if Someone doesn't believe that there was a global flood, that the earth was filled with violence, and that that, of course, would be the reason why you set up structures on stilts to where it's a little more difficult to get at the people inside, like yourself, for instance, if you live in that structure, if you sleep in that structure at night. We know that since the beginning of human history, there have been battles, there have been wars, there have been murders, there have been assaults. Even if it wasn't people killing people, attacking people, making war against people. There were animals. And so maybe the spikes, to some extent, were to keep megafauna out. Maybe you have very large dominant predators. Maybe you even have very large aggressive herbivores that you don't want jumping over the fence, getting inside, running amok because they're feeling territorial and they don't want your little settlement here. It's speculative, We don't know what specifically these people were concerned about, what they were afraid about, but spiked walls around your home indicate some kind of a threat of violence. You don't put up spiked walls unless you're afraid of whatever would come over those walls doing violence to you, doing violence to your family, doing violence to your loved ones. This is a defensive structure, a spiked wall presumably. But I bring it up in part because we need to not be surprised that 
people who lived thousands of years ago in what we regard as a primitive state were concerned and maybe even reasonably afraid for their lives. We need to not be surprised by that. But I think that also is another assumption that's somewhat superimposed on the ancient past. There's a romanticized picture that we have, just like we think they were rather more primitive and they weren't as developed, they weren't as industrious, they weren't as inventive, they weren't as clever. Just as we so often presume that because of an evolutionary mindset, I would say that Rousseau's ideas, that the ideal is for man to live in a state of nature, harmony with nature, unencumbered, unrestrained, unmolested by external impositions of order, laws, prohibitions, mandates, commands, religion, all of that can prime us to peer into the, let's say, pre-Columbian American record and expect that Native Americans were, if they were living in more of an animistic mode, or if they were nomadic, or if they appeared to have a relatively low impact, which not so fast, by the way, but if they appeared to have a relatively low impact on their environment, we should be surprised if we found that they were fighting battles and wars with each other, that they were attacking and assaulting and raiding and, yes, murdering and raping. We shouldn't be surprised to find that kind of violence thousands of years ago hinted at with defensive structures like this. From earliest times, defensive structures have been more to do with keeping your enemies out, keeping predators out, and keeping the people on the inside of your fortification, your city, your town safe. And that latter piece, that latter part, it might be that the one who built them wanted to keep himself safe. But then if it's a community, that's where civilization comes from. That's where fulfillment of the cultural mandate, the dominion mandate comes in. You protect your family. And if your family grows larger and other people who are friendly say, we want to join you, well, then you're also going to work together to protect their families and they're going to help you to protect your family. And before you know it, you've got to have some order, some rules for how we relate to each other inside, because it's not always threats outside. It's sometimes threats within. And we have to figure out how are we going to talk to each other? How are we going to figure things out? How are we going to work together? And again, that's where traditions come from. That's where institutions come from. That's where very often laws and government and politics get their start is several families way back working together to provide for and protect their families, their children, their women, themselves, one another, figuring out how to live in proximity, how to get along, hopefully in such a way as to be able to provide and protect at a higher and higher level. Well, you get little pockets of civilization that are each doing that in their own different ways, and then they come into contact with each other, and they have different sets of rules. They have different standards and mores, and maybe they can figure out how to each give and take a little bit. Yeah, I like that rule. That's a great rule. Hey, can you show me again how you did that thing? We're not very good at that, but I, I like your technique. Yeah, what, what do you call this little tool? An ads? Oh, that's that's cool. And what is that? Oh, man, how did you make that knife? That's a great knife. Where did you get that? Can I get one? I'll trade you. You know, that's how it goes. That's how it works. When they get along, maybe they form an alliance of towns and cities. And before you know it, you have a kingdom. Because just like within this little community that initially started out from several families, you needed to have someone with authority or a group of men who have authority. Well, when you get a group of towns and villages and they're trading with each other, it may be that one of the towns or the villages is in an especially good spot, an especially convenient spot to be the hub, the meeting place where the others gather to discuss common problems, to compare notes, to trade, to make deals, to work out disputes, to figure things out that they need to tackle together or that they're alike trying to work through. 
And pretty soon what you find is another layer of law and order and traditions and institutions and political organization. You find that there's another layer that gets superimposed over the structures that were already in place. But it started with the family. It started with one man or maybe a few men, several brothers, trying to provide for their wives, their children together, helping each other out. Next thing you know, it's several towns and villages doing that together. And one grows especially large because it is the gathering place. And some people, rather than traveling back and forth, they say, you know what, I'm just going to set up here. I'm a merchant. I'm just going to set up here and people can come to me. I'm tired of traveling back and forth. And then that becomes a city. And if you're going to have a political organization to resolve disputes between the towns and the villages, pretty soon you've got a king. You have a king who is over surrounding towns and villages. But then hmm, what happens when another such collection of towns and villages nearby also have a king? And their king tells their people to make war on your king. If they bring a gun to a knife fight, now that kingdom is superimposed over your kingdom. And that's the story of civilization. If you can fight off the neighboring kingdom because you brought a gun to a gunfight or they brought a knife to a gunfight and you have a gun, so to speak, well, then maybe your kingdom gets superimposed over their kingdom. But the point is, this is human history. Fallen people with a sinful nature living in a broken creation that has been subjected to futility against its will. It's not how it was supposed to be that there's this fighting and dying and killing and scheming, assassinating, making war, making battles. It's not how it was supposed to be from the beginning, but then this is the world that we live in. And you have to figure out if others would like to come in and conquer your kingdom and take your stuff, put you in shackles, put you to forced labor. You've got to figure out what you're going to do about that. You can't just do nothing or else, well, I guess... They'll decide. They'll be the assertive one who makes that decision for you. So if you're wise, you see trouble coming and you hide yourself perhaps behind spiked walls. And maybe behind those spiked walls, you work on your tool-making skills. And by tool-making skills, I mean making some tools to be able to defend hearth and home if an enemy or a predator somehow makes it through the wall, over the wall, through the gate, and again, this is the story of civilization. This is what it's been for all of recorded human history, with the exception of a few brief generations at the very beginning in Genesis. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. It wasn't long after those generations started spreading out, being fruitful and multiplying, filling up the earth, that these became a part of what we have to work through, what we have to figure out, what we have to make decisions about together. Bringing this to our time again, though, and yet here's an example for you that would be common to our time and to the time thousands of years ago that archaeologists every now and then have an opportunity to study in earnest. And it's great when they do. It's fascinating. I love this stuff. Love it, love it, love it. I would love to be an archaeologist. But Billings Gazette, my home state, Billings, Montana, is a major city that has come to be large because it is a place where people can gather, bring things from outlying towns and cities that are smaller, centrally located. It's an influential city in Montana. Billings Gazette is their newspaper, and it's probably the most important newspaper in Montana. Billings Gazette has a piece up from August 15th, Park County Grizzly Bear Euthanized Following Cattle Depredation. Because, oh, by the way, it's not just the direct threats to you, your person, your body, your wife, your children, your neighbors, their wives and children that you have to be concerned about or be on guard about. There's also predators who will come after your livestock. If you've stored up some food, those predators are going to want to come in and get at that food. That's exactly what's happening in this case, in this story. A grizzly bear had been relocated and they say the teeth had gone bad 
And it's a common thing for grizzly bears when their teeth go bad, they start trying to pick easier targets. Cattle are pretty easy targets, especially if they're fenced in. There's only so far they can run to get away from the grizzly bear. They will get eaten. Unless you put the predator down. Unless you kill that predator. Now think with yourself for a moment about what the reception would be if thousands of years ago, pre-Columbian, before Europeans showed up, if thousands of years ago, Native Americans living in this region had access to, I don't know, a modern sporting rifle in a large caliber. If they had that available and you said, here, I'm going to jump in a time machine. I'm going to go back in time and give you this 6.5 Creedmoor AR-15. Do you want it? Supposing you could talk with each other. Supposing you also gave them the ammunition, of course, and magazines. Gave them some basic tips and tricks on how to utilize it. Methinks they would say, yes, please. (laughs) Yes, that sounds great. That would be extraordinarily helpful. But what would happen is when predators came to harm them or their people or their food to carry it off, to eat it during the winter, those ancient Americans, indigenous peoples, would have absolutely used the 6.5 Creedmoor AR-15 to shoot grizzly bears and wolves and mountain lions and the rest. No doubt about it. What did they use instead? Well, whatever was handy, whatever they could effectively wield to maximize the odds that they would be able to neutralize a threat while also minimizing the likelihood that the threat would neutralize them. That's the name of the game. That's just what you do when you take seriously that this is a life or death thing. It's a life or a death sentence if a large predator or even a large herbivore, think moose, decide to get aggressive with you. Because either A, they're going to harm you and they have the capacity, they have the size, the strength, the hard points, the sharp points, teeth, claws, antlers, hooves. Either they're going to dispose of you or they're going to run off with your food. And then what? What are you going to eat? What are your little ones going to eat this winter? This being a reality for those who live in the countryside up in Montana, for instance, where I'm from, that predators might come in and take your cattle. It's not no big deal. It's a big, big deal. We should be careful not to get so far removed from the reality of men and women and children who live in the countryside like this, that we sign off on foolishly initiatives that would take away their capacity to provide and protect. It's not a new thing. It's not particular to our age. It's not us being so horrible, awful, uniquely bad that we would go out into the wilderness and provide and protect and have an environmental impact. The folks who've been telling you that your whole life don't fear God, but we should know better. We need to know better. The dominion mandate was never rescinded. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. God never rescinded that blessing. It's instinctual for us, but it's for a purpose to bring glory to God, filling up the earth with his image bearers. What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring, not just any image bearers, but we should pair our fulfillment of the dominion mandate with a fulfillment of the great commission, making disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded us. And no, we will not do that perfectly, but it gives more grace. If your faith is in Christ, don't just sit around doing nothing, being unproductive, being worthless. Don't don't be lazy. Don't be passive. Get engaged. Get to work. In all toil, there is a profit. Switching gears a little bit. I would direct your attention to John Knox over at Not the Bee and a write-up from August 14th. Oliver Anthony reads imprecatory psalm for audience in first appearance since rich men north of Richmond went viral. Granted, this story is over a week old. That's okay. I'm going to go ahead and play cut one here of his reading from the Psalms, Psalm 37 more specifically, 
to an audience that came out to hear him sing. Take a listen. Uh, it's crazy to me because uh, I remember back in June I played here for about 20 people and uh, but that's that's the beautiful part of this country though is even an idiot like me can make something happen so if I can do it you can do it before we start singing and I mean we because I hope y'all are going to be singing too I just had something I, I felt compelled to share with you. This is in uh, Psalm, Psalm 37, 12 through 20. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose ways are upright, but their swords will pierce their own hearts, and their bows will be broken. Better the little that have righteousness than the wealth of many wicked. For the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care, and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, they will not wither. In days of famine, they will have plenty but the wicked will perish. Though the Lord's enemies are like the flowers of the field, they will be consumed and they will go up in smoke. Okay, great stuff, great stuff. This is rare and this is unusual, and this is surprising, and it's unfortunate that all of that is true. This shouldn't be unusual. This didn't used to be so unusual. There is no new thing under the sun, but then peoples do grow distant from God. Peoples and nations decide to go a different route and do their own thing. Just like I was reading for you in Joshua 16 and 17 about Ephraim and Manasseh declining to drive out the Canaanites. Even though God had said, drive them out, they decided to put them to forced labor instead. They decided to do their own thing. As we'll find out, there are consequences for that. But that's just it. There are consequences for us having decided to do our own thing as well. For generations, our ancestors prayed for this nation and they prayed that God would bless their individual capacity to provide for their families, to protect their families. They prayed for their children, that their children would come to know the Lord and love the Lord and serve the Lord. They prayed for the young women that their sons would someday get married to, raise a family with, build a home with. They prayed for the young men that their daughters would someday be given away in marriage to, hoping that Those young men would be of good character and treat their daughters well, provide for and protect them, deal kindly with them. For generations, prayers were made to God, petitions, entreaties, imploring the Almighty to bless this nation, reminding all who could hear that we were one nation under God, just one nation, lest we forget ourselves and suppose there were no nations before us. There will be none after. There are no other nations. No, no, we're one nation, just one, but that's okay. This is our nation. This is our country. And it was good that these prayers were made, that days of repentance and fasting were called for, days of thanksgiving and feasting to celebrate how God had answered prayers were called for. But then time went on and the people forgot God and were made to forget God. The people decided to forget God, and they also, in all too many cases, allowed others to persuade young people, sons and daughters, that there is no God. I'm your new God, essentially, was the gist of what was relayed. This whole business about the song, Richmond, North of Richmond, is encouraging on one level, 
that it is being so well-received. There's so much enthusiasm, and there's so much of an appetite for this attitude, this sentiment to be reaffirmed. Revolution is not what we need. What we need badly is reform. We need reformation, not revolution. We need to fix back up what has fallen into disrepair, what has been torn down, what has been auctioned off. There's a kind of irony. There's a dark kind of poetry to portions of the wall that was supposed to be built between the United States and Mexico to assert control over our borders, to assert national self-determination in defense of the rule of law. Not to say nobody can ever come in, but to say we want predators to not come in. And there are predators who want to come in from all over the world and do damage, do violence to our wives, our sons, our daughters, our homes. There's a dark kind of poetry to the pieces of the wall being auctioned off by the Biden administration. And yet, on the flip side, you have a song like this, regretting the fact, mourning the fact that there are so many people on welfare, which is to say there are so many people who live hand-to-mouth dependent on the government. They're addicted to drugs. They're addicted to alcohol. They're depressed. They're anxious, listless, frustrated. And yet there are other men who want to spend their money and close the door on their opportunity, write them off, marginalize them, mock them, dispose of them with the utmost contempt. And it's a shame, really. It is a shame. It's a damn shame. But what would be as bad or worse would be if Oliver Anthony here had, as has been alleged by many in the corporate media, who are hitmen for the personal reputations of anyone who might pose a threat to the status quo, the zeitgeist, the current social imaginary, as they claimed. He just wrote this song and recorded it to get rich. What a hypocrite. Next thing you know, he's turning down multi-multi-multi-million dollar record deals. Why? Because that's not why he recorded the song, as a matter of fact. He gets an opportunity to speak to this group in North Carolina a couple of weekends ago. And what does he do? He reads from Psalm 37. And here's another shame. If this guy reads Psalm 37 alone, if he is not ashamed to read Psalm 37 and to tell all of these people who came out to hear him sing and to hear him speak, this is important. This is more important than what I would say. Listen while I read Psalm 37. Take heart, be encouraged, don't lose hope. God himself will break the bows. God himself will fight for us if we put our trust in God. That's powerful stuff, but it shouldn't be one man alone reminding his country of our inheritance, of our heritage, of our past, of the generations of our ancestors who prayed for us to be free and to remain free and to be wise and to remain wise, to be godly and to serve the Lord with our lives. It shouldn't be just one man. And I hope, I hope, I hope it won't be just one man. And yet, for our last story, for our last item to discuss this podcast episode, consider some material from Joel Abbott over at Not to Be, August 18th. Christianity Today wrote an article praising Barbie and Taylor Swift a day before it trashed Oliver Anthony as anti-biblical. Who boy, do I have some thoughts. Eric Tietzel tweeted out side-by-side screenshots of the articles in question at Christianity Today. The title of the one from August 16th is Barbie and Taylor Swift are bringing us together. Beyond hot pink and bejeweled outfits, the subtitle reads, they showcase a deeper desire for community and collective joy. Beth Felker Jones is the author. This is filed under pop culture. Here we have in view Taylor Swift at a concert and also Margot Robbie in a still from the Barbie movie. Both of them with pink in the background wearing blue dresses, it would appear, made up 
smiling, happy, confident, very feminine, very beautiful, very feminine. But the next from Hannah Anderson, August 17th, filed under poverty, not under pop culture, filed under poverty. Oliver Anthony's viral hit, Doesn't Love Its Neighbors. (sighs) Wow. Tell us how you really feel, Hannah. Here, the subtitle is, Rich men north of Richmond is disdainful towards people on welfare Christians shouldn't be. As Joel Abbott puts it, and I quote, First up, Christianity Today wants you to know that Taylor Swift, the avatar of the sexually liberated, unmarried, childless modern woman, and the Barbie film with its direct feminist messages of women freeing themselves from the patriarchy are, quote, bringing us together, end quote. I'm not here to critique Swift or Barbie director Greta Gerwig, although you can read thoughts on her being assigned to C.S. Lewis's Narnia here and here. I'm also not here to say every woman is called to be a red-pilled trad wife. What I am saying is that the flagship Christian publication of the Western world called Christendom in olden times is out here stumping for vain, prideful women who have made sex and beauty their gods and have in turn become godlike symbols for millions of women seeking their own liberated selves. The new Roman gods are much flashier than the old, aren't they? From the article in Christianity Today, he quotes, Barbie and Swift's Eras Tour in particular open up dialogue about what Michelle Goldberg at the New York Times calls entertainment that channels female angst, awakening a seismic shift for women in helping women reclaim girlhood without rescinding power. These cultural artifacts draw on the ambiguities of the female experience celebrating the feminine while honestly addressing the difficulties of being a woman in a male-oriented world. And certainly, these events are occasions for women to enjoy this together. Joel Abbott asks a valid question. What does this have to do with Christ? Curious. (sighs) By contrast, here is what Christianity Today published regarding Oliver Anthony. Music that names the inherent dignity of the poor lodges a protest against establishment excess and echoes Old Testament calls for justice like God's condemnation in Jeremiah 5.28 of those who have grown fat and sleek yet do not promote the case of the fatherless or defend the just cause of the poor. Then I heard these lyrics, Lord, we have folks on the street ain't got nothing to eat and the obese milk and welfare. Well, God, if you're five foot three and you're 300 pounds, taxes ought not to pay for your bags of fudge rounds. Joel Abbott points out, She says the song reminded her of the shame she felt having to use food stamps once upon a time. Quote, But protest against wealthy elites and government corruption, no matter how justified, cannot ride on the backs of others who are also suffering. The price of accessing food through SNAP or a church food pantry must not be the poor's dignity and self-worth. Now, wait a second. It's not just the rich, but it is also the rich. It's those who are totally disconnected from the consequences of their legislative decisions, or if they intend these consequences, they are showing contempt for those they claim to be so much better than. They claim they are taking care of these people, but they're not. There's a casual contempt towards the poor, and you can't separate out criticizing the rich for the kinds of politicians that they are getting elected or threatening to withdraw funding for unless they change up their positions. You can't separate out criticism of the rich, what they support and what they oppose, and the moral content of the effects as they intersect with the choices made by the poor. These two cannot be divided out. And oh, by the way, Oliver Anthony I'm pretty sure has the right to speak from experience as one of these people he's talking about, he's singing about. You know, it's one thing when somebody is in a really bad way and you give them a leg up, but what he's getting at is the same problem with seeing a drug addict on the street and just giving them a big wad of cash. Actually, you might be killing them. You give them a big wad of cash and they go out and buy drugs and maybe overdose because they overdid it. Did you help them? If I see a situation like that, if I see it on the macro and I sing about it, are you going to say, oh, you were not respecting enough the dignity of drug addicts when you criticize someone for giving a large wad of cash to a drug addict? 
who then overdoses and kills themselves with the drugs that they bought with the big wad of cash. But again, let's take a step back, and I really do need to run, speaking of work and provision. But before I do, before I go, I want to loop this back to something we've been discussing and something I'm thinking quite a lot about with the book, The Toxic War on Masculinity by Nancy R. Percy. Women can be very poorly behaved, and you're not supposed to say anything about it. You're not supposed to say anything critical about it. They can be absolutely self-absorbed and vainglorious and negligent and vicious and awful and frivolous and vain. And that will be cheered apparently in Christianity today, which is mainstream, big Eva, the voice of your typical establishment evangelical thought leader. That's what Christianity Today is. Barbie movie, Taylor Swift. Yes. When was the last time the Barbie movie or Taylor Swift read Psalm 37 to an audience gathered to consider what's going on in our country, what's happening to our economy, what's happening to our capacity to provide and protect for ourselves, for our families, our friends, our neighbors, what's happening to our rights our civil liberties, what's happening to our right to privacy, that we're monitored, we're tracked, we're managed and manipulated and mandated everywhere we turn, what's happening? The Barbie movie and Taylor Swift are not going to read you Psalm 37, but they will be praised apparently by mainstream evangelical Christianity because if girls and women are feeling positive and encouraging messages come through the media that's all you need to know. If the girls are happy, if mama's happy, then everybody's supposed to be happy. If the beautiful young woman has a big smile on her face and just keeps on looking pretty, well then we're all supposed to be happy, right? Oh, who does Oliver Anthony think that he is? Who's this guy? Yeah, not a very good Christian apparently. Shame on him. Don't put any stock in anything he has to say. Oh, wait a second, right? Wait a second, wait, 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 wait a second. How does he get more criticism than the Barbie movie and Taylor Swift? That is a valid question. That's a great question. And there's an answer. The answer is partiality and feminism and radical egalitarianism and social justice and cultural Marxism and godlessness. It's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. It's an upending of and a ongoing rebellion against the commands of God and the created order according to God. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this Oliver Anthony guy has it all figured out, but Oliver Anthony, insofar as he is a stand-in for the working-class American man who is frustrated and really racking his brain trying to figure out how is he going to steer his family's financial wherewithal through what's already happened and what appears to be getting worse as we go, that guy... Yeah, let's pile on. Let's throw rocks at him and tear him down for all of American evangelical mainstream Big Eva to see. Yeah, get that guy. Why? Because he was being honest. He was a young-ish, straight white man being honest. And it doesn't fit with the pampered, self-indulgent, fat and sleek, self-impressed, self-righteous, self-serving brand of Christianity, which has become all too common in our country. Not repentant, no, no, but very happy to cancel people who step out of line in relation to the consensus being established by the secularists, the progressives, the left for decades. Very happy to cancel them so as to bring them to a kind of repentance. But it's just backwards. If that kind of repentance is not producing righteousness and it's not leading to greater faithfulness and obedience to God, service towards God, love for God, love for our fellow man according to God's commands and his promises and his character, his holiness, well, then it's not the kind of repentance we should associate with the salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the kind of repentance which is actually a turning away from what is good and what is true 
and turning towards conformity with the world. Friendship with the world is enmity with God, and yet the people who write these kinds of things have been very successful at insulating themselves from anyone who would tell them that. And if it's true for a little while that they can't, at a certain point when they get the capacity, they just decide to not. And that would be more honest. That would be more accurate. It's not that you couldn't be more fair, be more honest, be more even-handed. It's not that you couldn't help showing partiality. It's that you chose not to. When the capacity was there, you chose not to. And the concerning thing is there are a lot of people who are going to be taken in by that because it is presented in Christianity today. And they're going to think that's gospel. That's not gospel. That's two foolish women's opinion showing partiality, trying to cozy up to godlessness in broader society. We should do better. We should ask for God's wisdom. We should ask for his salvation. We should ask for his mercy and his grace. We should ask for his forgiveness because this has been the way of it for far too long. And judgment is nigh. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I gotta run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.